I know how awkward that is for some of y'all. Some of y'all are like, man, sweet. I get a moment to just to- totally hang out with folks. And some folks are sort of like, okay, all right, this feels um, uh, scripted, and I'm going to, okay, I'll meet the person in front of me and behind me and beside me, and then I'm going to stand here and hope he gets started soon. That's me. Uh, and I got some feedback. If you can turn me down a little bit. Uh, that's me, so I totally get it. But I, I think it's, um, it's almost like a sound of worship as people fellowship. And uh, if you stick around Sunday mornings after we dismiss, you get more of that. If you just kind of belt out of here, you miss out on stuff like that. So, and I, I know the tendency to belt because I'm a, I'm a belter, but I need this fellowship as well. So this fellowship time is part of our worship. I'm going to start with prayer this morning. I'm going to pray for a country pastor, a guy that I heard officiate at a funeral yesterday that I just felt like, man, we need to lift this guy up. Not because there was any crisis, not because we heard any deficiency. In fact, I heard a guy that was gripping the scripture or gripping the gospel and was, was uh, preaching from the scripture for his um, officiating over this funeral. So uh, I want to lift up a guy named Wayne Darty, who's a pastor at County Line Baptist Church. Uh, I believe it's in Miller Grove. And also, we, also this morning, we're going to pray for the McCulloughs. It's just a week ago, we were praying for a gentle and timely passing of Lori's mom. Well, she passed away gently and in a timely way with her family around her and family in the house, family all on hand on Tuesday. And she was buried yesterday. So that's answered prayer. And uh, she, sometimes in death, there's, I've watched folks just sort of fight it and you don't know that they're consciously fighting it, but just some really horrible last few hours. She didn't have that. She just stopped breathing. And it's really a beautiful passing. And I'm convinced that had something to do with her lack of fear. There was um, from life's first cry to final breath, there was no guilt in life and no fear in death. She embodied that, I think, in her last few days. She died well. So we want to pray for the McCullough family, for the other family members. Cardwells were affected as well. That was Christie's aunt. So we want to pray for all of those involved, that they mourn well, worship well. Uh, it's the wise that pay heed to death and understand that uh, it's an appointment that we all have, and we need to be conscious of that and ready for that and uh, serious, sober about preparing for that. Let's, worship, or let's pray. God, this morning we want to lift up another pastor. Wayne Darty. just enjoyed hearing his uh, heart yesterday in a funeral and hearing him express the relationship that he had with one of his church members and the uh, sense of humor, the laughs that they had had, the, the poking fun at each other, uh, but the serious uh, involvement that they had in each other's lives uh, as Marcia was dealing with cancer over the years. Uh, his relationship with the family members just seemed like it was just a neat opportunity, Lord, to see a shepherd involved with his flock and knowing you and bringing the, the scripture to bear. Uh, just enjoyed that yesterday. And Lord, we want to lift up, um, want to lift up Wayne, want to lift up County Line Baptist Church. We want to lift up all these little country churches that are out there and spread out all over that are being faithful. Lord, we just pray that they would not be discouraged over um, um, maybe carrying on a full-time job while they pastor full-time, um, that they not be discouraged that if their church is not huge, uh, that they would just be faithful and be faithful in the small things and entrust the people of God to you, uh, whatever that size that people may be, whatever their life 
uh, stage of their life crisis. Lord, we pray for Wayne and pray for others that they would be faithful in that. Thankful for brotherhood and sisterhood with these little churches that, that surround us. Uh, we pray for your name and your glory and your fame and your renown through the ministries of those churches. Lord, also we want to pray for the McCullough family, for the Cardwells, for the Potts, um, for all of those that um, are connected to this loss. Lord, we are thankful that Marcia knew you and is with you. Thankful for a life well lived. Thankful for a room of folks that she influenced through her work, that she worked as unto you. Uh, thankful that she was that very out loud about her faith and that she trusted you to her final breath. Uh, it was a sweet, sweet goodbye. And we pray for these, these family members that are um, the Garmans as well, for the, all these family members that are connected to this loss, that they will be wise and pay heed to the reality of it. That not only would they enjoy sweet memories of Marcia, but that she would be um, an inspiring example to those who are not walking with you. That they would see the beauty of the joy that they can have in walking with you and the assurance of uh, being with you when they breathe their last. Pray that you would use this death to bring life to those that may not be walking in it. Lord, also this morning we want to pray for one of our city council members. We want to pray for Holly Goche. Uh, not knowing Holly, not knowing if she professes faith in you, if she knows you or not. Lord, we just pray, first of all, for faith. If she does know you, that she is uh, fueled by faith. Uh, if she doesn't know you, that she would walk with you. Lord, we pray that you would use her on our city council, that you would use her in a way that would uh, allow for the advancement of the kingdom. Uh, we're thankful for our city council members and how they serve, and we, we pray that you would guard their hearts from... Um, influences that are not wholesome, uh, that are not pure, that are not true, and that they would do your work and represent you well, given the fact that you put them where they are. Lord, I pray also for these next few minutes. I count it a sweet privilege to consider a, a mom and a dad and consider the faith of a mom and a dad. And I just pray that folks in this room will see how relevant it is, and see how beautiful an example the Hebrews preacher has given us, that you've given us through him this morning. We give this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're in a series of sermons called Faith Photographs, where we're looking at the heroes of the faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews. Chapter 11, uh, as you're turning there, I'll share a passage that's really a nice definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's a beautiful definition and a passage worth memorizing. One of the cool things about this chapter is the chapter just goes through one example after another that amplifies that definition. As you get to see how people walked in faith and the specific examples that the Hebrews preacher uses, we're able to flesh out that definition some. We're not left with just the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. We're left with so much more with this chapter. Real visual aids, real sweet illustrations of what faith looks like. Uh, today we're going to be focusing on verse 23, and then we're going to be moving back to Exodus to get the story behind this reference. I'm going to give you a little map for the morning. We're going to go back and just sort of consider the story. It's not a complicated story. We're not going to have to spend a lot of time uh, dissecting it. We're just going to sort of climb into the story. We're going to ask two questions 
of the Hebrews preacher, and then we're going to just look at two points that we can walk away with. Okay, the plan for the morning, we read this passage in Hebrews. We'll go back to what's behind that passage in Exodus chapters 1 and 2. We're going to ask two key questions of the Hebrews preacher, and then we're going to land on two points that we can walk away with. Okay, that's the map. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Turn on back to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to climb into this story and consider what's going on behind this story. What are, what are the, what's the context for this story and try and make sense of why he uses this as, a, as an example of faith. Now, I hope you appreciated. I didn't spend a lot of time disassembling this. I hope you appreciated this is not Moses' faith that's being spoken of here. Moses is on the receiving end of someone else being faithful here. And it's a sort of obscure hero because it looks like it fits right in to the Moses section. The next few verses we're going to be looking at these next, this next week or two have to do with Moses. But this passage is not talking about Moses. Moses was a wee baby. He was not even born when apparently these decisions were being made. So we're talking about the faith of his parents, the faith of two people that we're going to meet today, and we're going to enjoy the story together. A little background for the story. Genesis chapter 15. Don't turn there unless you really want to. I'm not going to tell you not to. Um, Genesis chapter 15, verse 12. And the sun was going down. This is a promise that's being made to Abram. A deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not their own. That's where the people are right now. They're in Egypt. Okay, this promise was made a couple hundred years before Joseph reminded the people of it, before his death. That's what we considered last week. At this point, it's made five or six hundred years before where we are in our story in Exodus chapter 1. I want you to see the storyline. And part of the reason I want you to see the storyline is, folks, I went to seminary not knowing the storyline. I grew up in church. And it's not a knock against my church. It may be a knock against me. I didn't pay attention. But I, my pastor, I, over the years, our pastors, I fear, didn't, I fear they made some assumptions that people know the storyline. And I don't ever want to make that assumption with you. So if it's basic for you, like, oh, I already got this. Good. The person sitting next to you might need this context. So I'm not going to make any assumptions. This promise was made a couple hundred years before Joseph. Know for certain you're going to be sojourners in a land that's not your own. That's Egypt. Secondly, you're going to be servants there, and they're going to be afflicted for 400 years. And third, I'm going to bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And fourth, afterward, I will bring them out with great possessions. It's a passage we considered last week and is important context behind where we're going now in Exodus chapter 1. This was shared 200 years before Joseph with Joseph's great-granddaddy, Abram. Joseph reminded the people of this at his death, as we considered last week. And then here we are, three or 400 years, likely more like 300 years after Joseph's death, where all, all of these things are coming into play. All of those promises, those four promises that were made to Abram, at the point of Joseph's life, only one had come into play. But here we are, we pick up in... Chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus, where number 2 and number 3 are coming into play. Okay, that's all context. Let's look at our story, beginning in chapter 8. Verse 
Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. So there it is. Joseph didn't have any sign that this was going to take place. All he had was the promises. And here those promises are beginning to play out 300 years later. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other was named Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. This is funny if you, if you think about it. So God dealt well with the midwives. I like these two gals just already. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh, undeterred by the midwife's uh, explanation, commanded all his people. It's going beyond the midwives now. Let's take it to all the, all the people. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile River, but you shall let every daughter live. Chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi, this man's name was Amram, went and took his, as his wife a Levite woman. Her name was Jochebed. Amram and Jochebed. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She made a little tiny ark for him. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and she sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. 
She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. It's really a wonderful story. One of the things that occurred to me this week was realizing that Moses had the privilege of recording his own story. He wrote these books, these first five books of our Bible. So here he is writing in Exodus about his own childhood, about his own beginnings. And I thought, man, that is a sweet picture of a child knowing where they came from and knowing more than they just showed up. And what a great example to me that I want to be intentional about sharing with my children that there was some planning and some intentionality and some, some mindfulness to their beginnings. I've enjoyed this. This must have meant something to him. He had a sense of purpose in knowing how his life began and how his life was preserved. Just as God promised Abram and just as Joseph Joseph reminded the Israelites before he died, sure enough, the Egyptians had forgotten about good old Joseph. And sure enough, the Egyptians oppressed God's people. It started with slavery and it turned from slavery to infanticide. Let that hit you for a moment. It went from slavery, which is bad enough, to infanticide. I enjoyed a quote from A.W. Pink. He said, Might Pharaoh attempt to stop the sun from shining as prevent the growth of the children of Israel? Tell the midwives to do their job and putting the boys to death, or tell them to throw them in the Nile. But God's will is going to be done. These people are going to flourish under the oppression of Egypt. And sure enough, they did. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, the direction escalates from midwives put them to death to throw all the boys in the Nile. And yet there's this faithful little couple, Amram and Jochebed, that says, No, I refuse to be intimidated by the Pharaoh's edict. They're connected to the 400-year-long thread. I enjoyed this this week considering this. Connected to the 400-year-long thread of faith between Joseph and his family, this thread of faith that wove through three or 400 years of their time in Egypt, a bunch of people whose names we don't even know. 300 years pass of a bunch of people whose names we don't even know, and then here pop up this young couple, Amram and Jochebed, and we've got to know that they stand on some other faithful shoulders, names of which we will never know. A faithful thread was woven through this people. I thought, how many of us will be part of a nameless, faithful thread that others will stand on? What a cool thing to think about. Well, they hid him for three months, and there's no way of knowing why three months. It may have been three-month periods that the Egyptians would search homes and look for these little boys, but they hid him for three months, and it must have been God's direction for them to put him in this little bitty ark. And through sweet providence that only God could orchestrate, his life is not only preserved, but he ends up being raised by Jochebed. And what's even sweeter than that is Jochebed gets paid for it. What a beautiful thing God did in this story. Now, we're going to ask a couple of questions of the passage. One of the things I want to Uh, of Hebrews passage specifically, but one of the things I need to do in this next couple minutes is explain the difference between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. It may seem kind of academic, but if you've been paying attention, you know that the passage that we read in Hebrews is a little bit different than the passage that we read over here in Exodus. 
in Exodus, it says that the boy was fine, the word there means good, and that she hid the boy. But the passage in Hebrews says the boy was beautiful and that they hid the baby. Masoretic text, the Hebrew text in Hebrew says the boy was good and he was hid by mom. The Hebrews passage says he's beautiful, he's better than good, and he's hid by mom and dad. Now, the reason those differ is because it's yet another piece of evidence that the book of Hebrews was written by a pastor to a church that was not in Jerusalem. They're not reading the Hebrew text. They're reading the Greek version of the Hebrew text that's called the Septuagint. If you ever see it written, you're reading things about the Bible, it, the, the little code for it is LXX, is shorthand for the Septuagint. And it, you might look at these and say, well, there's a discrepancy here. They look, appear to be different. They don't have to be different. The boy could be both good, fine, and beautiful, and he could have been hidden by mom and dad, and dad just not being mentioned in the Masoretic text. So don't see a discrepancy here. But the reason I want to point these things out is because we're going to look at this story now through the lens of Hebrews. We looked at it through the lens of Exodus just now, but now let's look at it through the lens of Hebrews. I'm going to read the passage again, and we're going to look at two questions. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. There they are. Because they saw that the child was a butte, better than good, better than fine. He was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Okay, now we're going to ask the question of the Hebrews text, why did they do it? Why did they hide young Moses? There's two reasons. The first reason from this passage, if you're looking, it just serves up so nicely, is because Moses was a beauty. He apparently was a real beautiful baby. Now, there are two possible explanations for this. Apparently, faith is connected to this, but I'm wondering if in some way this might not be revealing the humanity of a man and a woman, a husband and wife, a mom and a dad, because what mom and dad don't believe that their own child isn't a beauty? I mean, think about it for a minute. You might see the ugliest baby you've ever seen in your life, but their mom and dad are holding that baby like it's the most beautiful baby in the world. Now, I'm not talking about any of your babies. I'm talking about other babies that aren't part of Crosspoint babies. You seem like, oh, man, how did that happen? But mom and dad, oh, he's beautiful. This could be just the humanity of these folks, but I think there's something more to it because faith seems to be connected to it. Apparently... His appearance was so striking that it was a sign to Amram and Jochebed of God's favor on this little boy. Verse 23 suggests that his handsomeness was somehow, in some way, a basis for faith. Now, I don't have a whole lot of explanation for how that works out. I know the Hebrews preacher isn't vain enough to say, hey, if they're beauties, let's let them live. There's some faith connection there. His beauty was a sign that God had a special plan for this little lad. That's the first reason, because he was a beaut. The second reason, because they weren't afraid of the king or the Pharaoh and his edict are the consequences. Their faith was stronger than their fear. We're going to look at this as one of our two points, but here's just two things that you could like look at and consider almost at a devotional level. The first is that by faith they hid him. 
By faith, they hid him. There's some intentionality. There's some some wisdom and some caution involved in their faith. Their faith wasn't reckless and it wasn't presumptuous. They didn't then go prance throughout Goshen with Moses saying, we're just going to trust God and do whatever we want to do. Sometimes missionaries go abroad and think that way, not our missionaries. But a lot of times missionaries end up working with students that may come over there and man, they're foolhardy and presumptuous and reckless. But faith we can see right here is wise and cautious and wary. It's a great little lesson for some of our missionaries or some of you that might go abroad through one mission work or another. The second thing to enjoy from just this little passage right here is that they hid him, according to the Septuagint. They hid him. It's a great picture of faith that should play out in the home as a they. Do you think about that for a minute, husbands? Husbands who defer to wife for faith matters? That was the profile 11 years ago when we moved here. And the profile for the Greenville Gary that we described. Not Gary Carroll, we're talking about just random. It's just a name. We, we talked about giving a different name. But Greenville Gary used to come in with his hands in his pockets, with his wife's Bible all worked over. All kind of bookmarks and marks a lot sticking out of it. And he's got his hands in his pockets. It looks like faith is best played out as a they. Maybe Jacobed's motherly protection coupled with Amram's valiant bravery so that they were a faithful team. It's beautiful when you see it, like Aquila and Priscilla, the dynamic duo. Now, the second question that we want to ask of this passage is why in the world would the Hebrews preacher reference this story? Why wouldn't he reference the midwives? Why wouldn't he reference something else? What's his point in connecting to this couple and how they moved in this context where this edict had been given to expose or drown the babies that are born, the male babies. It seems as if they were frozen with fear. Let me share a few passages with you from Hebrews that are sort of obscure, especially at the pace that we're moving through Hebrews, but they would frankly be obscure even if you were reading straight through Hebrews on your own. These themes that emerge from book only come through reading through it over and over and over again, but appears fear and being enslaved to fear was a theme in the book of Hebrews. The Hebrews church apparently was frozen by fear. Here's a few passages just from the book of Hebrews that will give you a little bit of context. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's encouraging the Hebrews church at this point in chapter 2 to not be enslaved to a fear of death because we've overcome it through Christ's work. Later on in the book, in Hebrews chapter 10, there's another passage that that was in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Don't fear Rome. Don't fear the synagogue. Don't fear your family members, your Jewish family members that are coming after you for your faith. If anything, fear God. Those are the hands that you should fear. Chapter 11, verse 7 is yet another passage. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent 
fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. If you're going to have any sort of fear, have fear of the Lord and have reverent fear. Don't be afraid of death. Don't be enslaved to a fear of death. Fear God and have reverent fear. Chapter 12, verse 21 is another picture. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said of God in this mountain, I tremble with fear. This book is about fear. And here's where it lands in chapter 13, verse 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Man, Amram and Jochebed are great examples of that reality. Apparently, the Hebrews' church was hunkered down behind locked doors and were not acting faithfully. They were afraid of Rome. They were afraid of the synagogue. Maybe they were afraid of their boss. Maybe they were afraid of losing their job. And the message here for us, as we just consider what's going on here in this overcoming fear and the type of fear that we should have, if anything, and the type of things that we shouldn't be enslaved to, the sorts of fear we shouldn't be enslaved to, is don't fear man. Don't fear Rome. Don't fear the synagogue. Don't fear your boss at L3. Don't fear your neighbor who opposes your faith. Don't fear Aunt B who makes fun of you because of your faith. Don't fear what man can do to you And don't fear what man might think of you. That's what I think our biggest fear is here. Don't fear what man might think of you for your faith. Don't be enslaved to fear like the Hebrews church. By faith, the people of God must overcome their worst fears. And this example of a mom and dad with fear over the life of their own child, what is more palpable than that, parents? You don't even have to be a parent to think about that. What is more palpable than a fear over over the life and well-being of your own child? And this is the example that's used here of a believing, trusting, faithful mother and father overcoming their worst fears. And it must have been, I hope it was, an encouragement to the Hebrews church. I hope it's an encouragement to us. He didn't pick the midwives as an example. Are any of y'all midwives? There might be somebody in here. I know there is such a thing now, but it's rare. Are any of you moms and dads? Do you need a faith example? How about Amram and Jochebed? Man, that one delivers. Now, there's two points. Two points, I think, from this faith photo. And I'm going to start with the second point first. Because it just dovetails right off where we just landed. Faith overrides fear. Faith overrides fear. It may seem obvious. It may seem like a no-brainer. Hey, give me something difficult. Give me something I don't know. Give me something I really have to work to get my head around. But here's the point of this passage, and I think why this couple is used as an example. First and foremost is faith overrides fear. Amram and Jochebed were not frozen by faith. By fear, their faith overcame their fear. And you know what's cool is they are in good company in our Bibles. Turn to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to look at a couple little stories just briefly. Daniel chapter 3. We would be wrong if we didn't consider a couple little stories here. Daniel chapter 3. We'll share the story about three young men 
that could have been frozen by fear, but weren't. Beginning in verse 10, some of you know the story. I hope most of you know the story. I hope all of you would read the story in detail. King Nebuchadnezzar, this is during the Babylonian exile. As part of the Babylonian exile, they took these young men that had some sort of aptitude or some skill, and they would put them to work. And this is the context for three men you're about to meet. Beginning in verse 10, there's a decree that's made. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Look over at verse 16. Let's hear from these guys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if we're going to get thrown into a fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Three young men defy the king's decree, and faith wins out over fear. Do you think for a moment that they didn't experience some fear? That they didn't feel some fear? Do you think for a moment? But faith won out. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. This is Peter and John. Remember who Peter and John are. They're a couple of the disciples and a couple of fishermen, uneducated, common men, fishermen, Peter and John. And who just weeks before, at least seven weeks, it's probably more like eight or nine or could be more than that, but it's close to seven weeks earlier, were the chickens of Passover night where Jesus is arrested, or the time of Passover where Jesus was arrested. These are the same chickens that ran off, and Peter denied Christ. This is the same Peter that denied Christ at least seven weeks earlier. They're speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Jump down to verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. I hope some of those names are familiar to you from seven weeks earlier. It's the same council that put Jesus to death. And all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power, by what name do you do this? Then Peter, a common fisherman, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified just weeks ago whom God raised from the dead, 
a few days after that. By him, this man is standing before you well. Jump down to verse 16. The council starts talking with each other, and they ask, What shall we do with these men? For that, notab- that, is that, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. They healed this, this guy we're talking about. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. He apparently was an old joker, according to this little account. 40 years old. Cool story here is Peter and John defy the council, the same men who only weeks ago were the chickens of Passover. The same council that they defy is the same council that crucified Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That sort of courage is faith. That's what faith does. One of the things that I remember vividly, I would say the most vivid few hours of my life was landing in Somalia. I forget if it's 1992, December of 1992. We didn't know what to expect. We were the first Marines to land in Operation Restore Hope. We didn't know what to expect there. We didn't know if it was going to be like a Vietnam kind of experience or if it was just going to be we just kind of move in and take over. But we came locked and loaded. I landed with 101 Marines in 18 Zodiac boats. And the fear was palpable. Some of our Marines, some of the Marines that I saw do the most amazing things I've ever seen, just real manly men, were vomiting over the side of the Zodiac boats as we made our 18-mile trip or whatever it was in to the shore. Vomiting from fear. And these are manly Marines. One of the things that I remember vividly as I was sharing is these first few minutes landing. I could hear my heartbeat the fear was palpable, like no, no time I've ever experienced before or since. We landed at the port of Mogadishu where they have these big mill vans set up. It looks like the back end of an 18-wheeler. We had to climb over these mill vans while we're being sniped at from a prison about 300 yards away. You can hear these rounds hitting the mill van. And the fear was palpable. And then once we went over these mill vans, we had to clear the port of Mogadishu and had to come around these mill vans where you don't know what's on the other side of them. And I remember hearing my heartbeat every time. And I remember walking in front of my Marines. I was the executive officer officer, and was having to sort of deploy our Marines. I remember walking in front of a bunch of scared Marines who were vomiting moments earlier as afraid of what I might find around the other side of a mill van as I was about my Marines potentially shooting me. The fear was palpable. But what I realized is fear does not have to leave you frozen. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the character to move on in the face of fear. 
And in this case, with Amram and Jochebed, it was not courage that pressed on. It was not character that pressed on. It was faith that pressed on. It's the same thing that fueled three young men in a foreign land. They pressed on because of faith. It's the same thing that fueled Amram and Jochebed. It's the same thing that fueled Peter and John. In the face of whatever you might do to me, I'll not be frozen by fear, but I'll be fueled by faith. Psalm 56.3 says, When I am afraid, not if I am afraid. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And I'm going to tell you right now, I promise you, faith displaces fear. Faith displaces fear. One of the things, too, I enjoyed about each of these examples is that the faithful are notoriously unimpressive. The faithful fearless are notoriously unimpressive. Whether it's these three young men, just three ordinary young men, whether it's Peter and John, common men, common fishermen, whether it's just this couple, Amram and Jochebed, whether it's David standing before Goliath, it seems like God ideally uses the unimpressive to be the fearlessly faithful. So if you feel unimpressive, then welcome to the club. That's who God will use to be fearless in a context that might be frightening. I know how frightening family members could be or those who are opposed to faith, those who might mock you or might put distance between you. I know how fearful it might be, those who might shun you for whatever whatever reason or another. We don't live in a a context where someone's going to kill you for your faith, at least here. But I know how strong those other fears can be. And the cool thing is, is faith displaces fear. I'll share a passage with you from Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. Jesus has sent out the disciples, and he's promised them that persecution is going to come. And here's what he says about fear. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is the same message that we read unfolding in Hebrews. If you want to fear something, fear God. But don't fear man, and don't be enslaved to a fear of death. Are not two sparrows sold for a pity, penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before Aunt B, everyone who acknowledges me before my L3 boss that thinks faith is stupid and wants to make sure you don't say a word about it at, at, at work, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. It appears from this passage that chickens do not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's just take it at face value. Apparently chickens don't inherit the kingdom of heaven. The faithful will be fueled by faith even in the face of fear and will acknowledge him before men and will trust him who's able to destroy the soul not man, whatever he might be able to do to me. That's an important message from this passage, an important point. 
Now for the other point. I told you I was going to give you the second one first. Here's the first one and where we're going to spend the rest of our morning. Faith values life. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Faith values life. Faith in this story compelled mom and dad to value, protect, and preserve the life of their child, whatever the cost. Faith was connected to the hiding. By faith, Moses was hidden. Pharaoh's edict was imposed on the unborn boys of Egypt. Realize, as the edict is is shared, there are boys yet to be born. And the king's edict meant they were as good as dead. Faith, though, from this little couple, stared down the barrel of infanticide and said, I'll not be party to it, period. I'll not be party to this. I will resist this in whatever way I am able. We're going to come back to this in a minute. But let me just show you the cool thing about life. Faith values life. And that's been true since the very beginning Look at Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. How many times have we read that passage? How many times have I read that passage? And I'm reading it right now. What's beautiful about this, this is the same word, this word good in Hebrew is the same word that is used in the Exodus account of Moses for fine. They saw that the boy was good. Tob is the Hebrew word. It's the same thing that God said about the day that he creates a bunch of vegetation. He declares it Tob. Just like mom and dad said of Moses, because life is good. I'm just this last year or so, maybe the last few months, enjoying the life in our yard. Christy's been into plants for a long time and enjoyed flowers and plants, and I'm just like, okay, whatever. Oh, you need me to water them? Okay. What a waste of time, you know. But just this summer, I'm like, man, I'm enjoying life teeming in our yard. If you know me too, you know, if you know me for a while, you know that I have, a, I have a bad for little bonsai trees. I don't know what it is. Little bonsai trees, they're like little animals to me. They're so cool. And they don't bark. They don't, you know. But they're dependent on me. They're needy to live. And they're just, they're, they have a little personality. And I'm enjoying life. God said it was good. And man, go get you a little bonsai or something. Or go plant a flower or something. Enjoy life because it's good. He said so. He didn't just say it about plants and stuff either. Look at verse 20 and 21. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Man, life is good. 
Look at verse 24 and 25. And let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds, our dogs and cats, critters. And it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, God saw and said, man, that's good. Man, to me, the picture of enjoying even a creature, a pet, man, that's good. God said so. The reason I get emotional about that is because I have a vision, as I'm even talking about that, of my dad examining, as a veterinarian, 40 years, examining a dog. He could be a mangy old dog. You look at it and say, oh, that thing looks like it ought to die. <laughs> but yet an owner brings that pet in there and watching my dad hold that dog. At, he's on a table and I'm holding it. And my dad opened him up, opened up his mouth and look at his teeth and pet his old mangy head and value that life. Countless times. I watched it. I watch him as a zoo vet valuing sick creatures one right after another and bringing them back to life. Obviously, God did that, but he used his medicine to do it. And man, it strikes with me. It strikes a chord with me. Proverbs 12, 10 says, Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Man, life has value. Whether it's a little bonsai tree are you a little kitty cat? Life is valuable. Life has been important from the beginning. One of the first professions in our Bible was the profession of a shepherd. What is a more beautiful picture of something caring for life than a shepherd caring for little old stupid, innocent sheep? And man, isn't it interesting that that's the example that Jesus gives in John, in John chapter 10 for who he is to us? That as a shepherd tends to little life, little needy, dependent life that won't make it without the shepherd, he tends to us because he values life because life is good. Man, the story of Noah. We watched the Noah movie last night. I would not waste your time on that. What a ridiculous movie. Gracious sakes alive. If you just re resign yourself to the fact that it's just made up, then you can watch it, but it irked me because the Noah story itself is such a great story. Why mess with it? What a beautiful story of a man and his family tending to a boatload of life because God values it. Man, the, ark, the fact that the ark was full of it says that God values life. I thought about the irony this week as I was not just this week, but in not irony, that's not a good word. I thought about the sadness of this infanticide that was going on in their context. Where faith plays out in their context and thought, man, Pharaoh's at work now too. And the only difference between now and then, then it was Pharaoh's decision for infanticide. But now the decision's up to you, whether you want to kill your unborn baby or not. And thinking about what an appropriate time for us as a church to consider what does God say about the life of the unborn? 1.21 million abortions in the U.S. in 2008. 1.21. From what I understand, that's decreased a little bit, but not much since then. 
million. And yet our God values life. This is a sadly similar context. The only difference now is who makes the choice, Pharaoh or mommy? Man, it's sad. Turn to Exodus 21. I want to show you a passage. We're going to take a moment and just consider what the Bible says about where life begins. Some of you may be undecided on that. And my hope and prayer is would be a result of this morning is that you would be decided on that because of what the Bible says. That you would leave here today. It's not a political point I'm making. This is a biblical point about the value of life. Look at Exodus chapter 21. Beginning in verse 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, okay, does that pregnant woman have a baby or does she have a little fetus? Does she have a choice or is she carrying around life? When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that the children, her children, apparently it's a child, comes out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determined. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. Remember the example they use is a pregnant woman. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Do you think he's making a point? Man, that is... Life. God says what's going on in the womb is life. And he calls it valuable. And God is involved in these lives even before they are even born with plans and days that are numbered and ordered. Psalm 139, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God values life and has plans for those little 1.21 million. I want that to hit you. Man, there's the potential to consider that the aborted child in some cases might be born into poverty. A oh, man, look what they'd be born into. That'd be, we don't wanna, want that to happen. Or maybe into an abusive home. Or maybe he could be or she could be born with some birth defect. We wouldn't want that. We wouldn't want them to be less than perfect. There's the potential to think that these lives aren't valued like the life of Psalm, life described in Psalm 139, but God values those with disabilities. He values those born into poverty just as much as He values yours. He valued the blind man in John chapter 9. Mm. He valued a poor widow, a poor widow, with nothing but a plug nickel to throw in the offering plate. He valued her. He loves poor people, apparently. And he loves needy people, independent people. I'll never forget the story. My dad, who is an evangelist, I mean, he shares his faith every chance he gets. I don't mean an evangelist like you call him on the phone and he rolls into town in his car because he's a hired gun and he's going to tell you about how 
crappy his life was before Jesus. Not that kind of evangelist. I'm talking about a man that every time somebody will sit still, he'll tell them about how great Jesus is and what God has done for them in Jesus. I'll never forget the story he tells me, has told me before about visiting with a couple. A couple that most people would write off because they're slobbering. They're in a wheelchair, both of them. Cannot communicate. Apparently she could communicate a little more than he could. Slobber running down their face. I mean, completely, completely dependent on someone else to tend to them. My dad met with them, shared the story of Christ with them, and then led them in the sinner's prayer. And how you feel about the sinner's prayer? I'm not against it. Some people don't know how to, how do I ask God for what I need? My dad led him, and here's how you pray that you'll be saved from your sins and that you'll go to be with him in the end. And this guy, I guess this young, this lady that was in the wheelchair, she was able to say it with my dad. And her husband, they were married, her husband grunted it. Grunted it in tempo with his wife. Man, God values life. Who are we to determine which one has value and which one doesn't? Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. He had plans for this weeping prophet before there was even a you. Before there was a you on the receiving end of those words. Before even conception, he had plans. Galatians 1.15, But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, he had plans for a guy named Saul, as yet unborn, to one day be Paul and to plant the church all over the Roman Empire. He had plans for unborn Paul. Genesis 25, a passage that's familiar to us just from a couple weeks ago. The children struggled together within her. That's Rebecca. And she said, if it's thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, they're in the womb. Two nations are in your womb. Nations. Life. And peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, Esau. And the older Esau shall serve the younger Jacob, he had plans for a deceiver named Jacob. He had plans for a prostitute named Rahab. He had plans for a man named Jesse and a shepherd boy named David. He had plans for even a boy born to a mom and dad, a dad who committed murder, and a mom and dad who committed adultery, a man named Solomon. He had plans for Joseph and a peasant girl named Mary. God had plans, and God values life, and the faithful value life. God owns the womb, and he values the life of the unborn because he's made plans and ordained days. And what severe judgment, what severe judgment is in store for those who are party to this atrocity if they live unrepentant. And what I want to share with this church this morning, with my people, our, my brothers and sisters, 
what severe judgment for those who know it's murder, who know it's infanticide, and do not act. How guilty are we? Because faith values life. Those who have heard the king's edict and do not join Amram and Jochebed in hiding the living, what will we be guilty of? I have some recommendations for ways to respond to this point in particular, that faith values life. The first one, I think it's the easy one. Care for the life of your beast. Have some life in your life. Have something that is dependent on you. Have something that needs you to water it or to feed it or to brush it. Just something. Get a little taste of what you're on the receiving end of with our good shepherd. That one's easy. Man, go to the pet store. Better go to the rescue shelter. Care for something. Let something in your life be dependent on you and care for it well. Go bathe your dog. (laughs) A righteous man cares for the life of his beast. How about this one? Respond to the infanticide taking place in our country somehow. Somehow. A few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, Scott and I sat down with the ladies that are part of our body that are working at Rafa, and they shared with us some of the dreams of moving into Quinlan. Those of you that are familiar with Quinlan, you know that there's plenty of opportunity there. There's a certain darkness that's right down the road. And it's a really cool opportunity that they were talking about and pining about what Rafa really wants to do. One of their main pursuits is to get a woman who's considering abortion on a table and do a sonogram where she gets to see a little wee heart beating. Man, it's not, it seems unimpressive. <laughs> but God could use that and has used it in many occasions to where a young woman who's considering abortion sees that little heart a lot much faster than that and says, I'm not going to do it. That's life. And she begins to value life. What a cool ministry. Here's the sad part for me. It was a few days later, I saw this article in, uh, I don't know where I saw it, online somewhere, a Planned Parenthood facility was funded by private donations. This is only days after I hear from Theresa and some of these other ladies about, man, we want to go to Quinlan, but we don't know how we'll ever be able to do it. You know, we got some possibilities here and there, but we don't know how we're going to fund it. I mean, where's the money going to come from? Where's the people going to come from? And I'm reading this. Listen, just a little little excerpt of this. Planned Parenthood representatives are speaking out about a new $2.3 million facility in the works across from Charlton Methodist Hospital. We've made a commitment to the women of the state of Texas that we are providing care no matter what. They're trying to respond to the uh, Texas House Bill Number 2 that was signed by Governor Perry last year. We've made a commitment to the women of the state of Texas that we are providing care no matter what. We are just doing what we need to do to fulfill that purpose. And there's the, at, the, at the end of the article, it says this, and it broke my heart. 
Planned Parenthood said as soon as they knew the tighter regulations were on the way, they reached out to private donors and have already raised $6 million to cover the cost of the new facility. Or that we were so generous with life as they are with death. Man, I want that to hit you. I want that to hit you. Were that God's people were so generous with life as they are with death. Man, Rafa should never have a question about do we have the funds to move into a community and show some women that are considering taking the life of their unborn what life looks like. They should never need a dime. Not when there are 90 churches in Greenville. Man, if you're not participating in some way, I'm going to urge you right now. How about respond? Some level of commitment. Funding, volunteering, something. Prayer. We meet on Wednesday mornings. Come pray. Bring that burden Wednesday mornings. Men, come pray for the unborn because God values life. Another one I'll share with you. Had a uh, have an ongoing conversation with Nathan Green. I want to share a little excerpt from an email from Nathan. It's a beautiful life-preserving story. I'm not going to share all of it, but just one, one little paragraph. Nathan writes, about 10 years ago, I was in northern Ghana one afternoon where the terrain looks a lot like south Texas with scattered mesquite trees and hot red sand as far as you can see. As we crossed a little stream in our pickup, there were teenage girls fetching water in plastic five-gallon buckets to carry home for their families. That night, the group I was with had a big meeting and a gospel presentation. For refreshment, someone placed a white pot full of water in the center of the gathering and a cup for people to use. I watched as a young girl of maybe six years old came to get a drink. When she lifted the lid off the white pot, I was struck by the color of the water. You could see through the water, but it certainly wasn't what anyone would call clear. I have a picture stuck in my mind of that girl taking a drink of that water with her eyes looking at me. This particularly struck me that night because on the flight over, I'd watched the movie Walk the Line. If you've seen it, you know there's a scene where Johnny Cash says, I never had to drink this yellow water you've got here in Folsom. Needless to say, God convicted me about trying to help these folks get water. You want to be part of a tangible, life-preserving, life-valuing venture? Nathan's sitting right there. We have to make it official, an official ministry at Crosspoint? No. Nathan didn't need that. He sees, he saw and sees an opportunity to preserve and protect and value life because that's what the faithful do. Do you want to be part of something? Nathan's right there. And the last example I'll give you. At one point, I don't know where we are right now, but at one point in this church, 25% of our children were adopted. I know we hadn't gotten rid of any of them. <laughs> so that's only increased unless the family's moved or something. We hadn't traded anybody in. Man, what a cool, what a cool blessing to be part of a church that is so serious about fostering and adopting. And what a beautiful life-valuing ministry. Life-valuing ministry. James says it's pure and undefiled religion 
It's religion at its best. Religion has a negative connotation in our context, but it shouldn't. There's such thing as good religion. (laughs) And there's hardly anything better than caring for widows and orphans because God apparently values life. I want to encourage you. If you like, man, I don't really know where to begin on fostering or adopting, likely you're sitting next to someone that can give you insight into that. You're probably sitting next to them or in front of them or behind them. But I'll give you some specifics. I'll give you one specific, specifically because he's sitting back there and he's one of our deacons that sort of oversees adoption type information. And in fact, we have some adoption resources that are unspent. Am I right? Yeah. Some of you are like, man, I could never adopt. I don't have the money. We have the money. <laughs> don't you ever. Don't you? And it replenishes itself. It's like the, the loaves and the fishes. It's like the oil, you know, and it just keeps coming. It just keeps pouring out. Don't ever let that keep you from being part of that ministry. Aaron Hamilton sitting right in the back back there. Talk to Aaron after we dismiss or talk to him this week. Say, where do I begin? Help me. I want to value life. I don't want to just hear it because just hearing it is not doing it. You need to distinguish the difference. To hear it doesn't mean you've done it. We want to be a people that are hearing and doing. And these are just a few options. These are just a few. It's not exhaustive. Some of you may be involved in some ministries that are life-valuing. And I encourage you, press on. Some of you may not be at all. Life may terminate on you. I have this picture. (laughs) It's a sad picture. I have this picture of Christian families in Greenville. This is not not across the board. The potential. Christian families in Greenville walk around with life preservers around our necks or under our arms. And we got ours, potentially. Meanwhile, there are people that are drowning and have specific life needs around us where all we have to do is go, poof, drag them in. Man, let's not be part of that picture. I'm not, it's not a condemnation of Greenville. The potential is there for any community. The potential is there for any church. We got ours. <laughs> but man, that's not the people of God. People of God have an otherness. The people of God value life with our God. Let's pray and then we'll distribute the elements. God, I hope and pray that as a result of our time together today that we value and enjoy life as much as you do. God, I pray that we as a people who are walking in new life through Christ will be a people that in faith move to protect life, move to preserve life. That we'll join this couple, Jacobed and Amram, in hiding and protecting those that you call us to. God, I'm thankful that the resources oftentimes don't seem to be there, but that they show up. The time wouldn't seem to be there, but that you would make the time. The gifting doesn't seem to be there, but yet you provide it. 
I'm thankful for those who are serving in these types of ministries and for those who are burdened about those types of ministries. And I pray that they will find that they have good company. God, I pray too that we will be people that are brave, fueled by faith. That we would not be frozen by fear, whether it's at work or in our neighborhood or at home or on Facebook or whatever venue we might communicate. I pray that we will not be fearful people, but that we'll be fueled by faith, trusting you. We love you so much, Lord. We give you this, um, these next few minutes. We're thankful that we get to share your table. In Christ's name, amen. Let's distribute the albums.